Our scripture this morning comes from uh, the 29th chapter of the book of Jeremiah, verses 4 through 7. And this is actually the first part of a letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving uh, elders among the exiles in Babylon. And this is what we read in Jeremiah 29, 4 to 7. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity, the welfare of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So sometime during the second half, when I was in high school, the second half of the game I realized that my dad and I were no longer guests, but exiles in one of the largest stadiums in the country. Now, my dad and I, we were Georgia fans, and we were not in Sanford Stadium in Athens. We were in another place. Uh, When the other team's quarterback, a somewhat decent guy named Peyton Manning, uh, (laughs) uh, finally found his groove, uh, 100,000 fans in Orange began to sing Rocky Top over and over again in the pouring rain. And I thought, this is not what I am used to. This is very different. Um, Although this was the 90s and Georgia was used to losing to Tennessee pretty much every year. Uh, Scanning the stadium, it kind of felt like we were the only two people wearing red. And where we were sitting, we might have been the only two people wearing red. I remember thinking, the passion for football, the desire, the excitement, all this seems familiar, but everything else is strange. The end zone has this checkerboard thing on it. Um, it's orange and white. The fight song's different. The mascot, the players, the coaches, even the dog on the sideline was very different. It didn't seem, it didn't seem right to me. Like we, it just felt different. We didn't belong in that place if, because we were Georgia fans. It felt strange. Our exile that night ended when we left the stadium, but moments of exile like this where we feel like we don't belong, where we're somewhat out of step with everybody else around us, where we might be, you know, have different traditions or something, uh, then the culture in which we live are pretty common in our lives. Sometimes it's simple, it's innocuous, it doesn't matter much. Sometimes you're the only person who doesn't like that one band or show or movie and you feel like, okay, this is, this is strange. Other times these moments are more profound. In the middle of a conversation, you suddenly recognize that you have a different set of standards or values or understandings uh, than the people around you or the person you're talking with. Many believers, however, experience this sense of difference on a more regular basis. Whenever we read the news, whenever we watch shows on television or listen to the radio or engage on social media, or just go about your normal day, sometimes we are confronted with the reality that the values of our culture and society are different, sometimes very different, sometimes not so different, than the ones we embrace as Christians. 
Over the past several decades, that feeling of exile has probably been growing among people of faith, but perhaps we shouldn't be surprised. If we look at the cultural trends of our nation, of Western civilization, that's kind of where things are headed. Author Russell Moore um, writes that as American culture secularizes, the most basic Christian tenets seem ever more detached from mainstream American culture. There is, for those who came and will come of age in recent years, no social utility or benefit in embracing the faith. Those who identify with Christianity and who gather with the people of God have already decided to walk out of step with culture. These Christians have already embraced strangeness by spending Sunday morning at church rather than at brunch. The old Mule House, I follow them on Instagram, and they talk about the brunch every Sunday, and I go, no, that's not going to happen, I don't think, because we're here. Our culture often tells a vastly different story than what our Lord proclaims to be true, what we see in Scripture. Over my own lifetime, our culture has declared that that truth is not objective anymore, that it is fairly relative, and that anything probably goes. Faith and reason are conflicting fields of inquiry, that sin doesn't really exist, so there's no need for a savior, that success brings contentment, that athletic glory lasts forever, that salvation from our problems rests in our political parties or candidates or the next best idea or the billionaires who are trying to fly to the moon or Mars or so on. Faced with living in such a strange world, the question really is for Christians, how should people of faith respond? Thankfully, we are hardly the first people to experience life in a culture detached from God. As we see in Jeremiah, the Lord provides guidance for exiles that find themselves in an unfamiliar uh, culture. While we're just beginning to experience cultural exile, the Israelites that we read about in our scripture today had literally been taken away from their home country and resettled as slaves in Babylon. Now, in the ancient world, exile was often a fate worse than death because death took your life and it was over. Your life was over. But exile took your identity. Exile separated you from everything that gave your life meaning, all of your routines, all of the things that made Uh, your life worth living is gone and you are planted in a completely different environment. In exile, the Israelites had to establish a new life far away from nearly everything and everyone that they had ever known. They didn't have their communities. They didn't have uh, the ability to go to synagogue. So how could they maintain their identity as children of God when they're navigating these unknown waters of this completely foreign Babylonian culture. From their desperate condition, three distinct options were available to people struggling in exile. Uh, And this is uh, pretty much available. This was available to anybody who found themselves in exile. First, they could try to hide. They could fortify their community or family with a bunker mentality, and avoid interacting too much with the larger culture as much as possible. Like we see in Psalm 137, they could ignore 
the requests of their captors to sing music from their homeland, and they could retreat from the world around them, just not try to be as separate as they could from everybody around them. And they could focus on their past. They could remember their spiritual identity. They could remember what God's done for them. But the danger with this option is that they end up ignoring the Lord who is calling them to be in this new place and disobey what he commanded them to do in this new chapter of their lives. So the first option, again, is that they could hide. They could try to avoid interacting with the culture around them. Second, they could fight. The Israelites could stand against Babylon. They could incite at best a culture war that would dominate every thought and action. And at worst, maybe actually kick off like an actual rebellion against the kingdom of Babylon itself. Now, that was dangerous, right? You could be genuinely eliminated. And while standing for the values of Yahweh against the pagan culture might seem noble at that moment, this course of action leads to direct disobedience of God's direction from Jeremiah. Third, and perhaps most dangerous of all, they could accommodate their beliefs and blend into the culture around them. To avoid conflict, they could adopt the customs and beliefs of Babylon to survive. They could shift their allegiance from Yahweh to the many Babylonian gods and goddesses and gain favor among the very people that enslave them. Accommodation, doing this, would, would be a bit like selling out. You'd be changing everything that you knew for what you were learning in Babylon. And it would certainly make their life easier, but they would abandon precisely what made them children of God. Of those three options, there are some that we probably would like more than others. All of them have wisdom in them. It's not wrong to hide and maintain your identity. It's not wrong to stand up for what we believe against a culture that's, that's drifting. But the Lord doesn't ask the people of God in this moment to do any of those things. And he instead commands them to maintain their identity within their own families and put down roots. He asks them to build homes, to plant gardens, to have children, to help them get married and have children of their own. Which, by the way, sort of is a clue to their future, how long they're going to be there. Right? If God is saying, hey, we need your children uh, to marry and have children of their own, that's a bit of a clue that they're there for the long haul. He asks them to do all of those things. He says to engage the world with with such deep purpose, they end up blessing, being a blessing to the city which he'd sent them. And perhaps their most challenging moment, right, at the beginning of their exile, as they're struggling to survive, the Lord commands them not just to be on their best behavior, but be better than they had ever been before. He asks them, don't just exist, don't just kind of passively sit by, but flourish. Don't step into the shadows and ride out your exile, but actively bless everybody you meet. Seek the good of the city in which you now find yourself, a city, by the way, full of the very same people that conquered your homeland and brought you here. That's a hard task. That's a very tall order. And this command must have seemed impossible, but it shouldn't have been unexpected. 
if the Israelites knew their own story. The Lord is always the one who saves, but the children of God have always been responsible for expanding and extending the good news to the people of every nation through their words and actions. The Lord's command in Jeremiah echoes his desire his, uh, for his own people to extend his blessings to others and love their neighbors as themselves. The command, I've mentioned this before in other sermons, the command begins with God's promise to Abraham. When he told Abraham this, I will make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And through your offspring shall all the nations of the world be blessed. This promise plays out through the history of Israel and people like Jacob uh, and Joseph, and especially Joseph and Daniel, who used their positions of influence in sort of foreign governments to bless not just the children of God, but the nations of Egypt and, and Babylon, those nations that were Israel's enemies. But the promise of God's blessing and presence is fully realized in Jesus, of whom the angels declare, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all people. While his death and resurrection restored the relationship between humanity and God, Jesus' final instructions to his followers in the Great Commission repeat this same existential command that we find throughout the Bible. The disciples, in their own way, sought the welfare of any and every city by proclaiming the good news of salvation to a lost and broken world. That is why Paul, who was once Saul, went to all of these cities. Because he knew by proclaiming the gospel, those people who were lost, who were wandering far from God, would be blessed. And he knew that when churches grew up in those cities, they would do things that would bless the city in which they were planted. The work of Jesus and the activity of the Holy Spirit in us isn't designed only for our own salvation, but the redemption of all people, the restoration of our entire world. Paul, Paul sort of distills this down in Ephesians. He writes, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We have a purpose in our salvation. We have been redeemed so we might fulfill the mission God has, uh, God has for us now in an increasingly secular culture. Even if we share the good news with gentleness and humility, however, it's still, we're still likely to face some resistance. There is genuine danger Genuine danger does wait for those who dare to act out their faith in ways that bless their communities. And if we're honest, this command of God to bless our city, to seek the welfare of the places in which we live, kind of scares us. Because it's easy to lean into one of those three choices that face the Israelites, especially when the culture shows hostility to any faith or expression of faith at all. 
It would, after all, be easier to retreat or fight or even blend in than to faithfully engage the world around us. Because doing that is complicated and it can be strange and a little bit messy sometimes. But Jeremiah helps us remember that we are not alone in our pursuit to seek the welfare of the city. There's an important word in the Hebrew in this passage, uh, the Hebrew word for exile. It's used three times in this short passage here in this letter that Jeremiah writes to the exiles. And it means to be carried away. Now, normally this would be a verb that describes how the Babylonians carried the Israelites into exile. But the Lord uses this word here, and when he uses it, it reframes the picture by proclaiming that he is the one who is still carrying his children. God is the one who carried them to Babylon. He is the one who is going to carry them as they bless the city around them. In these verses, the Lord reminds his people that even though they are in exile, even though they are in a a foreign land, the culture is not familiar, his presence remains with them and his promises have not changed. Although they have been enslaved in a strange land, their God still holds their future and most of all, they are present in his hands. His promise is built into the command itself. Bless the city because I am with you. Bless the city because I am with you. Through his presence in our lives, we are transformed into who Jesus commands us to be throughout Scripture. The redeemed people of God, whose hearts have been rescued and are so eager to rescue others. We are people who have experienced the love of Jesus, so we are now free to love others as he loved us. Peter uh, sort of Peter explains this later in uh, his first letter when he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. If he is with us, then we who are exiles can and will bless the city because we will inherently... Inherently acts more like God and less like the culture that surrounds us. Take, for example, this French village of Les Chambons in World War II. Under the leadership of Pastor Andre Trocmay, this primarily Christian village ended up sheltering anybody fleeing Nazi persecution throughout the war. Now, the punishment for hiding refugees during that time was well-known and cruel, and it could range. This is a range, okay? It ranged from instantaneous arrest and imprisonment, having families split apart, their homes and belongings burned, deportation to concentration camps, the entire village destroyed, or immediate execution. Okay, that is a very long range of things that could happen to you if you were found out, if you just discovered that you were hiding refugees. Despite the threat of Nazi patrols, every member of this village agreed that saving people was still worth the risk. So often at great personal cost, this small village 
saved nearly 5,000 people, 3,000 of which were Jewish families and children. When asked why they had been so committed to saving complete strangers, they'd never met them before, there was no connection, the people responded that they were obeying God's commands to love their neighbor. His commands compelled them to help, but the presence of God enabled them to move beyond their fear and bless anybody who was coming through their village. In the end, they ended up risking their own lives so that others might live. Their example was so moving that other villages in that particular region of France began to save refugees as well, getting them out of the country and to safety. Modeling the grace and love they knew through Jesus, a former child refugee, one of the refugees who actually went there, <clears throat> who found shelter in this village, said this, Nobody asked who was Jewish and who was not. Nobody asked where you were from. Nobody asked who your father was or if you could pay. They just accepted each of us, taking us in with warmth, sheltering children, often without their parents, parents children who cried in the night from nightmares. This village understood Psalm 82, which says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak. And the needy deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Throughout the history of our world, our Lord has used ordinary people to do extraordinary things in their communities. Every movement of the Spirit begins when individuals just like you and me begin to obey the commands of God and trust that he will be with us whenever we do move into our cities and try to find out ways we can bless them. Every tangible ministry or mission in the world uh, has begun with someone listening to the words of their Lord and putting them into practice. Right? The, the monastic movement in the early church began when someone said, I want to preserve what it means to follow Jesus and to, to bless the towns in which we set up. The Reformation began when one man tasted the freedom of a grace-filled gospel. The Methodist movement began when a group of friends started to take their walk with the Lord seriously. The, the institution of the slave trade began to fall apart in England when a group of Christian politicians could no longer bear the thought of their brothers and sisters and chains. A village in France rescued thousands of people from death because they knew that they had been rescued too, that they had been delivered from the hand of the wicked. Church, the same God that commanded and transformed these men and women throughout history commands and transforms us today too. The commands that, obeyed, uh, that they obeyed then are the same for us now, but so are his promises. Yes, we are exiles in our own land. We probably feel that. We have felt that more and more keenly over the past several decades. We will feel it more and more as our culture moves further away from our Lord, as more and more people forget what it means to follow Jesus or have never even grown up in places familiar with Scripture or the promises of our God. 
But the Spirit of God walks with us, and he leads us not into our homes to avoid culture, the culture in which we live, nor to fight in some endless culture war, nor to blend in and forget what makes us unique, but to bless the world in which we live. And my prayer for our church, that it might be that way here too, that it might be so in all of our lives, that every day when we wake up, we are thinking not just of ourselves or how the world out there scares us, but how we can bring the promise of everlasting grace, never-ending love, peace that never ends to a world that so desperately needs it. Hallelujah. Amen.